and carry to the captain. Take his hammer and carry to the captain. Take his hammer and carry to the captain. And tell him I'm gone. And tell him I'm gone. He has you. What I Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. I'm so happy to have in the studio with me Edward Hirsch. Edward, welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here with you, T. Uh, well, we're so happy at WCBN to have you here. Um, I'll just do the quick station ID, WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, Living Writers. And thanks to Greg for engineering for us. Edward, this is great. It's a rainy day. And you've, you're already brightening it up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And you, you did a reading last night in the apse of the, the art museum here at the university. And tomorrow you'll actually be in conversation with Linda Gregerson at 510 in UMA in the Helmut Stern Auditorium. So people can come and see. If they didn't catch you last night, they, could, they have a chance to t- see you tomorrow. Yeah, it'll be fun. Will you be reading some poems tomorrow too? Or is it, it more sort of... You'll have to ask Linda that actually. Okay. <laughs> Probably mostly not, but maybe we read a few. We might read a few. Mostly it's a talk about poetry, I think. Oh, that's great. But that might be a way into the conversation, too. Right. We'll some probably read poems. some poems. Yeah. Yeah. Linda's great. She, <laughs> she'll, she'll let you. Um, before we go further, I'll just read the, the bio in the back of the book. We've got some of your books here on the table. Um, the latest book, The Living Fire, New and Selected Poems, out with Knopf. Um, We also have Lay Back the Darkness and Special Orders and also um, Responsive Reading from back in, I think, maybe, was that 99, Edward? Yeah, the 90s, end of the 90s. And published by University of Michigan Press, so we've got that on the (laughs) table, too. Um, We'll go far and wide this hour. Edward Hirsch is the author of seven previous collections of poetry, including Wild Gratitude, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Special Orders. He has also published four prose books, among them How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, a national bestseller. He has received numerous awards for his poetry, including a MacArthur Fellowship, and publishes regularly in a wide variety of magazines and journals, including American Poetry Review and The New Yorker. And the, and the Washington Post. Yep. Right? Maybe we'll talk about that. A longtime teacher in the creative writing program at the University of Houston, he is now the president of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. Is that why you, you're making me salute you here, Edward? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. And I just heard the good, the good news that you have a, a new book coming out in April, National Poetry Month, a poet's glossary. I do. It's a big glossary of all the poetry terms. Um, And the thing that's striking about it is it's a very international book, so it brings forward a lot of terms that even people who know a lot about poetry may not know, folk forms from Africa and Latin America and India, things like that. So I think it's interesting. 
Oh, that is. And it's also interesting how it connects in some some way to your, your work as a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania in sort of the... Uh, in in uh, folklore. That's right. I mean, one of this, one of the things that was really fun for me about this is that I was able to use a lot of my folklore background. And one of the things about this particular book that's coming out is it treats folk forms equally with aristocratic forms. So there'll be something about the work song and the blues and um, riddles and proverbs and praise songs from Africa, as well as the high European forms like the Sestina, the Villanelle, the Canzone, like that. I think they're all part of poetry, too. Yes. Oh, brilliant. And so, and we opened the show with a work song. Um, this one, I think, was performed by Lead Belly, and you've got a poem, um, a work song, too. I do. I, I, was, I have an essay in, in How to Read a Poem, Fall in Love with Poetry. I write about work songs and um, as one of the origins of poetry. And, uh, and I think work songs are poetry. And uh, every culture that has ritualized labor has work songs. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's, they're very highly rhythmical. Um, and so anyway, the poem that I wrote, Work Song, was while I was writing that, while I was writing that essay and driving my son back and forth. And we were listening to work songs in the car, which is not something he wanted to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dad. Yeah, thanks, Dad. (laughs) Because it's in the poem, I think you set up the narrative that it had just arrived in the mail and you wanted to listen to it. Exactly. And and I think it's even from Folkways Recordings, Alan Lomax. That's right. That's what it is. You remember very well. Well, it's it made me listen to the song. I had never heard it before. Yeah, and, and it was wonderful, and the rhythms, and how you connected in your poem to um, workers that are outside your window with jackhammers, right? As they're <laughs> yeah, that's it. We sort of enter into the song with them. You and your son, or yeah. the and the or the poet and the reader. Well, I was thinking my son and I, but <laughs> yeah. maybe the poet and the reader too. Which seems like something that you really, I I don't know. I feel like that's something you believe in strongly, Edward, about how a poem isn't really complete without like the poet the, there's the poet and the poet writes the poem but without the person finding it like that that message in the bottle is that was that Mendelstam? is that what you yes had? i mean this is the central metaphor of how to read a poem that and and fall in love with poetry which i can see you've read and it's um my argument is that the meaning of a poem is not intrinsic to the poem, that the meaning exists in relationship between a poet, a poem, and a reader. That's why I like Isaac Babel. Uh, um, uh, that's why I like the um, Martin Buber's notion uh, for poetry, in the beginning is the relation. Because I think the relation is what's crucial in the reading of poetry. So I got the idea of the message in a bottle first from Paul Salon, who said a poem is a message in a bottle sent out in the not always greatly hopeful belief that somewhere in some time it would wash up on land. I love on that. Heartland, perhaps. On Heartland. Yeah, yes. on Heartland. Yeah. So it means that the poem isn't complete until a reader finds it and opens it. And he got the idea from a piece that Osip Mandelstam wrote, a little essay he wrote in 1918, I think, called On the Addressee, where he says... A, a seafarer goes down to the shore and finds an unlikely-looking bottle from the past. He opens up and starts to read. And then Mandelstam says, it's okay to do so. I'm not reading someone else's mail. 
It was addressed to whoever found it. I found it. Therefore, it was addressed to me. I am the one. <laughs> I am the one. And I think we all have that experience where you read a poem and you feel as if you were actually the one that was designated for it, that it speaks so completely to you that it was meant for you in a kind of one-to-one communication. And I'm arguing that poems are really complete. Their meaning becomes complete when they find their readers. And the reader completes the equation, as it were, and the poems are actualized inside of readers and that they, their whole meaning, the complete meaning of the poem can't exist until a reader reads it. And that it's that experience of contact between the poem, the poet, the poem, and the reader that is the the nature of the poetic exchange. So I think that that's a kind of, I have a kind of participation mystique about poetry that it's two solitaries connecting through a text. I mean, part of the strange thing about lyric poetry is we're talking about a very vital, intimate connection between people who are not physically present to each other. Because I'm not, it's not like you and I are talking to each other across a table when you're reading a poem. The poet is not there with you. Except you get the intimacy is there. You get the well, intimacy. You're in the mind and the imagination. But the person is not there. Yes, yeah. And I think that enables a different kind of communication through the, through the made thing, through poetry. Yeah, different, different possibilities. And yeah, and underscoring this idea that it's it's the made thing. It's the poem speaks to your own feelings, but it does through through language. And so, when you're reading a poem, you're alone with your own feelings, but you're also alone with the words of another, because language is necessarily social. And I think that poetry delivers on our spiritual lives precisely because it gives us this gift of intimacy and interiority. It gives you privacy, but it also gives you participation. And it's that connection. connection. And that that connection is at the heart of the lyric exchange for me. Mm -hmm. And why why you you believe that the the poem is, is perhaps noble? I think it speaks to our intimate lives with a kind of intensity that other kinds of discourse don't. And I think that it... I'm getting the idea of nobility from Longinus and the sublime and the notion of transport, that poetry can transport you. Um, but I think I feel the nobility of it is because it speaks so deeply and so directly to our inner lives. And I think especially now in the culture we live in, where there's so much bloom and noise all the time, and people are trying to sell you things 24 hours a day, and people are just on their screens all the time, that I think the nobility of poetry is that it speaks to our inner lives. And hoping that... Yes, that is. I mean, that's... And and why... I mean, in a way, you were saying that it's not as if... Um, poetry is is not like in any sort of danger of disappearing because as human beings it's part it seems like i don't know i I guess what i'm hearing is in a way too edward is that it's like it's so necessary poems although sometimes i don't know how like thinking about the message in the bottle like how like what if people aren't opening the bottles or what if they're not looking for the messages that are coming up on the shore or 
Right. Is that why we put messages like poems in buses? <laughs> like, like we're going to try to gorilla some poems into lives? Or... I mean, poetry is a human fundamental like music, so it won't disappear. But I would say that it's, it's challenged in our culture by the incredible success and visibility of mass culture. And people are used to some kind of instantaneous gratification. And, I mean, we don't live in pre-literate societies where um, the only communication is the oral storyteller telling you stories at night with the epic singer. I mean, we live in a world where poetry is competing against television and movies and constant screens and, and everything else. And so I think poetry needs some advocacy, but it's not going to disappear it's just that our spiritual lives need some tending and poetry needs some advocates to speak about what it's important is because the way poetry is taught is so it's taught so badly in schools because families, kids don't get poetry through their families anymore very often um, as they do in some other countries. And so, I mean, I think poetry needs some work and we need some people to speak on its behalf but I'm not worried that it's going to disappear. Because it is, it's, so, it's part of the human experience and it's what we'll, human, like people will keep making. I think it's a way of knowing that you can't get elsewhere. It gives you a kind of communication that you can't get through movies or through novels. I mean, I love novels. I, I love movies. I read the paper. I read the New York Times every day. Um, I just think that poetry gives you something else, something different something deeper. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll talk more. Today, Edward Hirsch is on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. You just caught a bit of MC5. And now Edward Hirsch <laughs> is here on Living Writers. Um, we've got the Living Fire, new and selected poems um, on the table before us. Also, special orders, lay back the darkness, and responsive reading. Um, so so that song is is making its appearance on the show, sort of as a, a nod to your time at Wayne State University in Detroit, Edward. Um, and I think last night you mentioned that there were many people in the, in the audience that you f were familiar faces from that time. Well, I was really touched. A lot of people drove up from Detroit. And then, of course, I knew a lot of people in this area, too, who were connected to the poetry community. I had my first teaching job at Wayne State. And so I started teaching. I was at Wayne State from, I think, 1979 to 1984. 
So I lived in Detroit for five years and taught at Wayne, and I had a really strong feeling for the city and for the kind of students who went to Wayne. I felt very connected to them, and I was very sorry to leave, actually. Um, it's just that there was a very strong creative writing program at the University of Houston, and they lured me away. <laughs> but I, I loved my time in Detroit, and I was uh, moved to see a lot of people there from those days last night at the reading. And what, and it was your, so it was your first teaching job then it was my first teaching job. and were you teaching creative writing edward or were you or can... I, I initially started teaching folklore uh because oh. i had just come out of my P, my of gotten my phd and i was hired as a folklorist and uh i was teaching irish literature and basic literature and folklore classes and then in 1981 i published my first book of poems for the sleepwalkers came out much of it had been written in detroit some of it before, but some of it in, in Detroit. And after that, I was invited to teach creative writing at Wayne State. Wonderful. And were you also still keeping some of the folk folklore courses as well? I, so I was. Doing a, a the whole time I was at Wayne, I taught folklore as well as as well as poetry. And and Edward, you um, you've been writing poems though from when you were a lad. I feel like when I was researching you, there was like a story, like even from as far back when you were eight years old and, and with the, your grandfather, could you tell us a little bit about your, your grandfather? Yes. I, I wasn't writing poems when I was eight years old, but I think the story, <laughs> child genius, <laughs> I think the story you're referring to was my grandfather wrote poetry and, um, he, I don't know why he did this, but he wrote, he copied his poems in the backs of his books. And um, when he died, I was eight years old, and I was very close to him. And it, I was, it was, you know, a kind of initiation for me. I was heartbroken. Loss. And yeah. uh, I went down to the basement of our house where there were anthologies, and I found this anthology. And in those days, there were anthologies where the names of the poets were not on the poem. They were in the back. I didn't look in the back, and I read this poem, and somehow... I decided in a kind of magical thinking that this poem I read called Spellbound was by my grandfather. And it was very moving to me. And I, 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 I was deeply affected that my grandfather was somehow speaking to me from beyond the grave through this poem. And it comforted me. And then when I was in high school, I was looking at an anthology and I opened it up and I said, isn't that strange? This poet writes so much like my grandfather. Then I turned the page and I go, hey, grandfather's poem is here. My grandpa's poem is here, but it turns out it had been written by Emily Bronte. <laughs> that was a bit of a shock. <laughs> so I was right about my analysis of the poem. Analysis of the poem. I understood it quite well, I think, but I was wrong about the author. It wasn't my... <laughs> wasn't my grandfather. Did you ever find any? Well, you did. It sounds like you did find your grandfather's poems. Like you actually saw them in the, the back of these other books, like the handwritten poems. Uh, or? I didn't actually. This is quite oh. heartbreaking. Oh. That oh, My I'm grandfather sorry. wrote his poems in the back of his books and I never, no one paid much attention to it. But after he, after I started writing poetry when I was in high school, I guess I was a sophomore by then, I went to my grandmother and started asking about my grandfather's poems. And 
she and she was kind of bewildered by why I was interested in them. I don't think she was ever very interested in them herself. But it turns out he wrote them in the backs of his books. But after he died, she gave all of his books away. So the poems were lost forever. I mean, she didn't know if he wrote his poems in Hebrew, in Yiddish, or in English. I think they were probably in Yiddish, but we don't know. We don't know if they were Zionist poems or if they were love poems or... But I think that part of my interest in Eastern European poetry was somehow imagining that they connected to my grandfather. And I do have a poem in which my grandfather speaks in the poems, the lectures on love, which are all from the points of view of Diderot and Charles Baudelaire and Gertrude Stein. There is one called Oscar Ginsberg, the unknown person. And that's my grandfather. Would you like to read that one? Sure, that would be a pleasure. And and having your grandfather, like when you even that young at eight years old to know that your grandfather wrote poems somehow, it makes it seem more possible that you would write poems in a way or be a poet. It's a like possibility in the world. I think that registered on me very deeply, much more than you might, much more than you might think and much to my parents dismay. But yes, the idea that he wrote poetry somehow lodged in my mind. And I knew that was, it was something he could, I knew it was an option. So my grandfather's the speaker in this poem. It's as if in the whole series, some people are giving lectures about love. So it's as if it's a lecture series and Charles Baudelaire has been at the podium (laughs) and Marina Svetlaev has been at the podium and Heinrich Hein has been carried in on his mattress grave and they've all been giving lectures about love. So now it's my grandfather's turn, Oscar Ginsberg. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and strangers, I stand as a man with spectacles on his nose, as Isaac Bobble said, and autumn in his heart, a family man, an immigrant, an unknown poet who scribbles lyrics in the backs of books about the fair Jerusalem of erotic love. I never would deliver a commentary on love though I affirm its textual strangeness, a subject taken up by madmen, lovers, poets who filled hundreds, thousands of books with a Keatsian holiness of the heart's affections, a prayer book the beloved knows. Eros is a fiery secret everyone knows or should know. Cut open my pilgrim heart and you'll find the sentiments of strangers, de l'amour, libre amoris, women in love, all the upper registers of romantic poets. Love for Jews is nothing if not bookish. A practical woman opened me up like a book and recited me backwards like a Hebrew poem. I fell deeply, even desperately in love with my wife, a lovely pragmatic stranger who always wore spectacles on her nose in matters concerning the human heart. I speak the backward language of my heart, Reprove a man of sense and he will love thee, Proverbs. And she reproved my books, my airiness, my empty purse, which, heaven knows, I could never fill for my beloved stranger who preferred playing cards to reading poems. And yet Eros is the surest sword of poets, drawn across beds, cutting through books. I've known what the migrant heart knows. Oh, never say that I was false of heart about the steadfast steadfast passions of such love between tender enemies, intimate strangers, 
Who knows? But someday the book of my heart may be inscribed by a stranger, my daughter's son, brooding about the strangeness of love. Thank you, Edward. So that poem was a sestina. That's where there are all the repetitions of the same N words. Um, and then the final envoy at the end. But I was amused by the envoy because I have my imag- my grandfather imagining that someday his daughter's son, me, yeah. <laughs> would come along and try and tell a story about the strangeness of love. There it is. Which is fulfilled. There now, it is. On the there page. Is. Yeah. Is. And so also this is a way then for your grandfather's voice to be present in these pages. Like this idea of... Um, poetry it's not like this like the that he's present again like you're bringing him back it is my imagination of him i mean he isn't speaking for himself i am (laughs) you're not channeling it (laughs) i am speaking through him but he is with me and when i was writing the lectures on love this great kaleidoscope of you know writers from the past I got the idea that I wanted to include him. He should be there too. Well, did his voice start coming in? Like as you were sort of, you were spending time imagining these other, you know, like Baudelaire and then his voice would be coming in. I began to think he should be there too. He should be there too. Um, So I like that line from Isaac Babel, spectacles on his nose and autumn in his heart. That That was my grandfather. Yes. And then how it also applies to the, your grandmother with her glasses between yeah. the love. Like, yeah. that, that, that's great. Yeah, I did. I have to say, I did like the line who preferred playing cards to reading poems. That was certainly yes. my grandmother. It was a nightmare for, for her when her worst nightmare came true. And not only had her husband been a poet, but now her grandson comes <laughs> along too. She's like, oh my God, not again. Why not a hand of bridge? <laughs> yeah, why not a hand of bridge? Anyway, he was crazy about her and so was I. Oh. Uh, well, sometimes I, we, we, the way that um, she appears in the poem, you can, you can tell that. Yes. Well, he he really loved her. He really loved her, even though she was such a pragmatic person. You know, she took care of me, and so did I. I was crazy about her too. And and well, Edward, it seems to me then this is um, one of the reasons you've you've said in in past interviews about the um, like like why like this drive to write poems this idea of like um like that that poetry speaks out against our vanishing so that's i think to quote you actually um that's so in a way it's like you're this is some one way that your grandfather isn't vanishing because now he's he's this this speaker that's in this this lecture series on love well i mean uh I've always felt that there's something unbearable about people dying and that this notion is at the heart of lyric poetry and that the idea that I can never, I will never reconcile myself to the fact that people you love die and they're with you in some way, but they're not with you the way you'd like them to be and the way you want them. And, and, and everything vanishes and we vanish too. And if you care about things and they matter to you, then you want to preserve them. And poetry is one of the ways to try and rescue things from oblivion, not just the external things, but how it felt 
what it was like. I mean, the novel is very, very good at capturing the very the social elements of what the world was, what the world is like, what it looks like, um, how much things cost, how buildings go up and come down. The novel is very good on telling certain kinds of stories. Poetry is very strong at telling what it felt like to be here. And I think that's one of its primary tasks. Ezra Pound says, only emotion endures. And so you're trying to preserve things that matter to you if they did matter and to speak out against our vanishing, to speak out against everything becoming oblivion, everything vanishing. And so you try and carry the people you care about with you and you try and carry their lives with you and you try and inscribe something about them. Ultimately, you can't carry them with you. Ultimately, you can only do some part of what you can do. I'd give it all back to have them back, but you're not given that choice. And so poetry has an important part to play in preserving the human image, in keeping something alive over time. The lastingness of it. That's what you're trying for. And and it seems as though you're saying that there's so an Ezra Pound about this emotional, that that's a necessity, but then also then the made thing, like how it can't just be, um, you're not just speaking, you're not just, you're just, you're not just speaking about your feelings. You're not writing diaries. Right. I mean, you're referring to the fact that, um, the oldest word for poetry in Greek is poesis which means making, mm. and that a poet is a maker and a poem is a made thing. Yes. And so you are not just writing down your feelings, you are transforming them into a made object so that they can live. But they live not just as your feelings, they live as part of a work of art, the made thing. And the reader responds to that work of art, to that made thing, not just as a testimony, but as something that's been created, something that's shaped. Because I always remember this one time writing a poem that I thought was one of my best poems ever about my grandmother and just giving it to someone to read and them sort of being like, well, this is really nice about your grandmother, but it won't, it doesn't matter. I don't see why it would matter to anyone yet. And so it was a way to work, like, like how do you work with image or do something with form or or draw something that makes it. This is a hard truth about poetry that (laughs) the fact that you care about it doesn't necessarily make it a good poem. Exactly. Or sometimes can, it can hinder it. I mean, there, there has to be something cold blooded in the making of poetry that cold blooded, cold blooded. Yeah. Because you have to, you have to, as soon as you address something, you get involved in technical problems, the problems of poetry, the problems of lineation, the problem of stanzas, the problem of metaphor. And maybe some of that separateness or that distance is what allows for that, the reader to come in, like there's something, then there's space in it somehow for that connection you were talking about earlier. Yeah. You're not just talking soul to soul in an intimate conversation. It is mediated through a work of art and its communication is through the work of art not just as as we're speaking. It's sort of held fast. It's like packed in salt. And the salt is the sonnet form or the three-line stanzas or the shorter lines or whatever. Hear, hear, Edward. Edward Hirsch today on Living Writers. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. 
wishing I'd never met her, knowing if I'd forget her, how much better off she would be. The longer I hold on and the longer this goes on, the harder that it's gonna be. But it's four in the morning and what's more the dawning just woke up the warning in me I never deserved her God knows when I heard her that's the last thing that I want to do she tries but she can't tell how she feels but I know too well what she's going through If I love her so much I don't know why I can't do The right thing and just let her be But it's four in the morning And what's more the dawn And just woke up the warning in me Last night I told her this time it's all over Making ten times I've told her goodbye Last night we broke up this morning I woke up and for the tenth time I'm changing my mind Welcome back. If you just tuned in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. Today on the program, Edward Hirsch is here. Um, Thanks to Greg for playing the song, and thanks to Tex for picking it out of the universe. Um, Edward... um, would you would you mind reading your poem 4 a.m.? <laughs> Seems appropriate. So we just heard that too. 4 a.m. <clears throat> the hollow, unearthly hour of night, swaying vessel of emptiness. Patron saint of dead planets and vast, unruly spaces receding in mist. Necklace of shattered constellations. Soon the stars will be extinguished a cell block sealed in ice, an ice house sealed in smoke, the hour when nothing begets nothing, the hour of drains and furnaces, shadows fastened to a blank screen and the moon floating in a pool of ashes, the hour of nausea at middle age, the hour with its face in its hands, the hour when no one wants to be awake, the scorned hour, the very pit of all the other hours, the very dirge, Let five o'clock come with its bandages of light, a life boy in bruised waters, the first broken plank of morning. So, Edward, tell us really how you feel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a desolate. Yeah. It's a desolate. It's a desolate poem. But, you know, even the most, this is one of the striking things about poetry is that even in the most desolate poem, Robert Frost said that poetry's play for mortal stakes. Even writing a desolate poem like this, it's all driven by images. And so you're still saying necklace of shattered constellations. You're still imagining the stars as a shatter. And then the stars will be extinguished. You're still saying a cell block sealed in ice and you're reversing it with an ice house sealed in smoke. You're still playing with words and you're still coming up 
with images for your despair, really, at 4 a.m. for pits. And so it's really striking that there's something hopeful about poetry because there's something hopeful in the making, even when a poem is as desolate as, as I think this one is. It becomes a kind of prayer. Let five o'clock come. <laughs> get me to the next. Yes. Get me to the next moment. Get me out of the dark night of the soul. And there it is, the first broken plank of morning. You can see a way out. And and this is part of like a theme of yours with insomnia that you've worked with your whole life or lived with. <laughs> How to Both. phrase this? Yeah. Both. Both. And. And so this, and it's so that's this ode to four a.m. In some ways, that you get through it. Um, but but could we go to to the the so before wild gratitude? I think there's um, yes. In my first book, um, for the sleepwalkers, I wrote a poem about insomnia, which I think is what you're referring to called insomnia. Called insomnia, exactly. So maybe I'll read this and then I'll say something about about it. Wonderful. Undressing the cold body, you lie down at dusk. Blue shine on the windows, and the sun husked for winter night. Tight-lipped and longing to embody sleep, to devour the white lie in sleep, you watch the room slowly steep itself in shadows, steep itself in the wine-flushed darkness of another night. Silently, you confront the blue-rimmed edge of outer dark, those crossroads where we meet the dead knowing their first street calls will rise and nuzzle against your chest like tiny, inexorable animals or the blent edge of a knife about to descend. And all night you're left sitting at a desk, frightened, thinking of the skull under the smooth skin, how we return to our lives as animals, engulfed in soft fog, exposed to the wind against our fur and denied warmth, denied rest, denied earth sleep, and granite. So that's like that's that's, that's the, young young poet Edward Hirsch. Yeah, that's the start. Um, well, first of all, you know, I started writing about insomnia because I'm an insomniac, and and for the Sleepwalkers is a poem about sleepwalking, which I did as a child. But of course, I'm a lot of other things too. That some of them I write about, and some I haven't. The thing that I hit upon was when I wrote the poem Insomnia was I realized that I like the, it's the situation that insomnia sets up inside a poem. And one of the reasons that it's been a recurrent subject for me is because I've been able to make something out of it. And it's not just that I'm awake at night because sometimes I sleep well and sometimes I don't. But the situation that insomnia sets up in a poem is one that's been repeatedly moving to me and dramatic, which is you have a speaker who's a kind of soul consciousness when everyone else is asleep. And so it creates a feeling of solitude and loneliness in a poem. I mean, I'm not the only one who's done this. I think there are really great poems that 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 take place at midnight, the witching hour, the epiphanic hour, and poems that send your friends away and the speaker is by, them, by himself under a lamp. I think that what it does is it creates a feeling that the mind is in a kind of drift. 
and the speaker is all by himself or all by herself while everyone else is somehow unconscious. And I like the feeling that that creates in a poem. And so I've returned over the years to different poems about insomnia because it loosens the mind for a certain kind of reverie in the poem. And it creates a kind of spotlight on an individual speaker and it creates a feeling of vast loneliness that I've sometimes tried to create in in poetry. So I like the dramatic situation that insomnia creates in a in a poem. And and I think it's so I think it's so interesting that we just heard perhaps like the first one that you the first insomnia poem named insomnia and and that the language because it, it is it is so different like from 4am like the, the the style is really different this i mean i hadn't set out to write poems about insomnia when right. i wrote the first one right. i just wrote a poem about insomnia and i liked the poem well there's a clarity there's a clear pure words like the language which i think's interesting because that's sometimes you speak or you have spoken in the past edward about like that's something that you're searching for but that tension then is that fair to say I yeah don't, i mean I, I i mean i i i think i have i have a taste for clarity and i try to write clearly and that, with, and, that and with a sense of mit underlying mystery or feeling of the spookiness of the world we're the world we're in and the spiritual lives we're trying to lead and what's around us. Um, Thinking about but, the skull under the skin, that yeah, pretty much qualifies that's as pretty spooky. much a shocker. Yeah, that's there. a shock. Yeah, that's and a, true. So true. That, that's a shocker. And if you're going to, if you're, if you're going to think like that, you can see why you're not sleeping very well. <laughs> you can see why you're you definitely get why that, you're, why you're kind of brooding. But yes, I mean, I've returned to it in different ways with different styles and 4am um, which is a more imagistic poem, maybe a more inventive poem in a certain kind of way, but maybe it's just a different strategy for working through the subject of yourself alone with your own mortality. You know, Emerson said, there are two absorbing facts, I and the abyss. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> American poets are very strong at this subject of, that's one of the reasons I think that American poets are so strong at the seashore lyric, where the the person goes down to the shore, like Walt Whitman's Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking, or Wallace Stevens' idea of order at Key West. It's you alone with the universe in a way. It's the self alone at the edge. The expansiveness. Edge, the expansiveness of the, of the sea. And um, for me that's been insomnia for me it's it's just there's something rudimentary and essential solitary of you up against it where the social mm. world seems to fall away and you're alone with your own you're alone with your own thoughts and feelings and i like to try and create that for the reader and why it can also be this um because the insomnia poems there are um there's also this celebration of having that time to work like that's the rich time like you were saying something's loosened in it so it's not like they're all desolate or or something no, about the some isolation of them are just a it's chance the... for daydreaming yes yeah it loosens the mind for for reverie or what i would call night mind night mind night mind which is i think very good for for poetry because poetry often 
enables a kind of associative logic or different than different than reason mm-hmm. um keats said i don't see how anything of consequence could have come about through consecutive reasoning and so poetry is very good at what keats call what keats calls non-consecutive reasoning or trance or reverie or daydreaming i mean there's a very good book by the french phenomenologist bachelard called the poetics of reverie a wonderful, wonderful book about the way poetry operates in relationship to daydreaming, which is not dreaming, but daydreaming of letting the mind drift. And I think Night Mind, which is not not commonsensical, which is illogical, mm-hmm. can get you to a different kind of state and a different kind of thinking or what I would call poetic logic. Mm-hmm. Mind drift. Mind drift. Mind drift, night mind. Let's take a short break and we'll come back. Today on Living Writers, Edward Hirsch is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Edward Hirsch is here. Um, we've got on the table and been hearing um, f- some from The Living Fire, new and selected poems. Um, and tomorrow, mark it on your calendar, 510 at UMA in the Helmut Stern Auditorium. Um, you can hear Edward Hirsch in conversation with Linda Gregerson. And so that that ought to be lovely. So tomorrow, Thursday, 5, 10 p.m. Um, at the Helmut Stern Auditorium in Uma. Um, Edward, so we were talking before the break about insomnia and the ways it comes into and out of your life. Um, when I was reading um, anything but standard, <laughs> I, it occurs to me that that was probably also has a connection to insomnia, like being out as the narrator is, um, but this time not quite alone. <laughs> right. This is an insomnia poem too, but the speaker's with his dog. And so I've got company. I've got company in this, in this poem. 
I like the title because I thought it would be clever for a... He was a standard poodle, so in his elegy, this poem is called Anything But Standard. And this is set in Houston. It was the two of us, wasn't it, on those steamy nights, circling the low-slung museum across the street and lingering by the pond behind the chapel. It's how the southern clouds pass slowly overhead, season after season, year after year, as you followed a low, intricate scent across the stately lit lawn and studied the squirrels in the live oaks and waded into the brown reflecting pool with the broken obelisk. You were a descendant of water dogs and anything but standard when you materialized out of the sticky heat with your dripping black forehead and delinquent grin, a growl unmuzzled. It was your Russian face that steadied me as I sat on a battered wooden bench, lost in a night that wouldn't end, and you lay down, calm, poised, watchful, and stirred beside me on the simmering grass. Let's get up and go. Trot ahead of me, old friend, and shake off the watery darkness. Thank you for reading that one, Edward. My pleasure. It's it feels um, like Rocky's a lot. Rocky's. Again. It's an yeah. elegy yeah. for it's an elegy for Rocky, um, and kind of company. And it, at the end, it turns and actually addresses him directly. So let's go. Yes. And um, I like calling him an old friend. Feels like something out of a Japanese poem. Um, but anyway, it's or like it's, the beloved, beloved, and I hope this uh, isn't. Um, uh, uh, sacrilegious, but Hafiz when addressing the beloved, and um, and at one point that a dog I think is come, enters in as the beloved instead of as the, it. It the, has a little bit of the feel of a love poem. Yeah. It does. I, I agree with that. I think it actually has the feel of a love poem in a certain way, but of course it's not exact. It sort of isn't. Sort of isn't. It's a poem of deep friendship, um, and companionship. And there's the moment where you go. You know, you're sitting on a bench. I was sitting on a bench, lost in a night that wouldn't end. And um, and he's there with me. And that somehow and helps. It's, and it's the present tense, like, that where let's go. But then right. you're acknowledging that he's trotting on ahead, so he's... He's going on he's ahead. ahead. He's yeah. going on ahead, exactly. He's uh, going on ahead. So when, you, when you're writing, Edward, are you pretty much making at, like some t time each day to try and reckon with something in a poem or writing a fragment or a line. I mean, yeah. uh, I think it's important to try and sit with, sit with, sit with a piece of paper, or sit with your screen or however you write every day and uh, give yourself some time. I'm not, it's, it's, I'm not always true to that, but I really try now, most novelists I know, they write at the same time every day. I mean, they just have so many pages to cover. It's so much work. You really need to, you know, nail yourself to the chair and write for three or four hours. I think poets need to nail themselves to the chair too, but I'm the sort who doesn't like to do it at the same time every day. But I do try and find time. I try and carve out some space where you're alone with the words. Walking, I think, is very good, actually, and very inspiring for creativity because it gives you time to think, 
you're in your body and you're out of your body and you're it's good for drift and good for daydreaming and thinking and I try to do that every day especially even um thinking about walking in the woods and now with the the autumn leaves and I know you have a a poem one of the new poems I think falling um in, in meditation on autumn um but sometimes you can find yourself without like taking the paths that you know, but not even remembering that you were there because you were so in your mind. But that that movement. I think getting lost a little bit that way is really quite striking and you know healthy for creativity if you're not getting too lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The, as long as you know where some of the yeah, paths yeah, lead, yeah, so yeah, you can get yeah. out. Um, and and so, do you find in your in your work, Edward, with the process? I'm wondering, like, is it the things that are kind of part of your day to day that also become part of the the poems? It seems like, or or even trying to understand it. Like, for example, you have several poems de- dedicated to your father, and also with your father in them throughout several books. Um, I mean, I never, you know. You know, I never set out to write about my father. It was never a plan, actually. When you, if you first told me when I was started writing poetry, I was going to write about my father, I would have told you you were kidding me. I wanted to write about Matisse. I wanted to write about Paul Clay. I wanted to write about the world of culture. But things happen to you over time, and um, and so you need to remember. I would say that I mean there are a lot of poets for whom their daily lives are part of the part of the fabric of what they're writing. Daily life comes into my work, but it's actually mostly work daily life from the past. So when I'm writing about my father, daily life is there, but it's more the daily life that we had rather than the life I'm actually living right now. For example, one poem, I think you're pushing him in a, a maybe a wheelchair, and what it, it's an occasion for he's fighting... Alzheimer's, I believe, in the poem, and then it talks about how he taught you how to fight as a younger man. That's right. It's about wheeling my father through the Alzheimer's ward, and it's how I start remembering how he taught me to box, how he set up a a little ring in our backyard, and I was swinging away and moving around, and he's shouting at me to jab like that, and then the poem turns and say that turns to my father fighting an invisible enemy. Um, he's fighting too now, um, but the enemy can't be found and he's fighting in the shadows against something he can't name or see. So yes, it's something that happened, turned into a kind of metaphor, um, but it's not from our present. I mean, in the present, I was wheeling him through the Wells Alzheimer's ward, but it turns to the past and then it comes back to the present. Yes. It's, it's as if it's, there's, um, We've got like the, the, the title places. Uh, well, I guess we're. Do you would you want to read that poem by any chance? Since I think I'm starting a, to describe it and thinking maybe well, it, I can't do it justice. It's a little long. I wonder it, if oh, I, okay. I wonder if I might do better to read special orders for oh, that, him. I would love that. Yes, please. Um, I mean, the other poem. I, I'm fond of it. It's just it might take more time than we actually have. You're those. That's a wise words there. This is, and so I'll, while you're finding it, um, remember everyone, Edward Hirsch will be in conversation with Linda Gregerson, friend of the show, tomorrow uh, at UMA and the Helmet Sturt Auditorium, 510 p.m. Thank you. Special orders. Give me back my father. Walking the halls of Wertheimer Box and Paper Company with sawdust clinging to his shoes. Give me back his tape measure and his keys his drafting pencil and his order forms. 
Give me his daydreams on lined paper. I don't understand this uncontainable grief. Whatever you had that never fit, whatever else you needed, believe me, my father, who wanted your business, would squat down at your side and sketch you a container for it. Thank you. Thanks for talking with me today, Edward. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me on, T. Come back anytime. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Today on Living Writers, um, I've been talking with Edward Hirsch, The Living Fire, New and Selected Poems. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Greg for engineering. (laughs) He's nodding away back there. No, thank you, Greg. (laughs) Many, many thanks to Edward Hirsch for being here. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso I fell in love with a Mexican girl Nighttime would find me in Rose's Cantina Music would play and Felina would whirl Blacker than night were the eyes of Felina Wicked and evil while casting a spell My love was deep for this Mexican maiden I was in love but in vain I could tell One night a wild young cowboy came in Wild as the West Texas wind Dashing and daring a drink he was sharing With wicked Felina, the girl that I love So in a his right for the love of this maiden Down with his hand for the gun that he wore My challenge was answered in less than a heartbeat A handsome young stranger lay dead on the floor Just for a moment I stood there in silence Shocked by the foul evil deed I had done Many thoughts raced through my mind as I stood there I had but one chance and that was to run Out through the back door of roses I ran Out where the horses were tied I caught a good one, it looked like it could run Up on its back and away I did ride Just as fast as I could From the West Texas town of El Paso Out to the badlands of New Mexico Back in El Paso my life would be worthless Everything's gone in life, nothing is left It's been so long since I've seen the young maid My love is stronger than my fear of death I saddle up and away I did go Riding alone in the dark Maybe tomorrow a bullet may find me Tonight nothing's worse than this pain in my heart And at last here I am on the hill Overlooking El Paso I can see Rose's cantina below 
strong and it pushes me onward Down off the hill to Felina I go Off to my right I see five mounted cowboys Green, four, three, two, the shot by Green. 